I'm Stephanie. Hi, I'm Art. Hi, I'm Chris. Hi, I'm Mitzi. Hi, I'm Jane. Hi, I'm Darcy. Hi, I'm Erica. Hi, I'm Jamie. And this is Virtual Hallway, the podcast where we talk about teaching at a community college. Today, we're talking about institutional racism and hiring practices in particular. Like most institutions in this country, higher education has deep roots in racist practices and ideologies. In our attempt to understand and change the current institution to address these practices, we must acknowledge that even though only 11% of our school's student population is white, over 45% of our faculty are. This is one of the areas that we're trying to address in order to increase representation, improve students' learning outcomes, and create a more equitable world. And that's why we have four very special guests this week. And I'd like to give you all a chance to introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your background. Let's go ahead and start with Jamie. Hi, I'm Jamie Fear, and I'm an adjunct uh, English professor in humanities at El Camino College. I received my undergraduate degree at University of Rhode Island and my master's in comparative literary studies at Goldsmiths University of London. And I've been working alongside my colleagues for uh, the past year and a half in a faculty learning community, which focuses on institutionalizing equity. And I also um, presented on equity-minded hiring practices uh, at the Site Winter Institute last uh, in February, 2020. Hi, I'm Darcy McClelland, and I am a faculty member in the biology department at El Camino College and also the president of the Academic Senate. Um, I got my bachelor's degree uh, in biology from the University of San Diego and my PhD in cell molecular and developmental biology from University of California, Riverside. Uh, while I was in grad school, I worked in a program that uh, tried to increase um, success of uh, un traditionally underrepresented students in STEM populations. And I got really interested in this idea that um, a lot of our traditionally underrepresented students don't have role models that they can look to that look like them in the field. So I started getting interested in faculty diversification. Um, I was involved in student government. Um, it, uh, I was the chair of the graduate students for the UC system. And in that role, I started going to faculty diversity roundtables and representing students in conversations with faculty and educators about uh, faculty diversification and why this is so important, particularly in STEM, because that's my area. And then I, I came to El Camino and it, I was passionate about it. And I, when I got involved in Senate, I started working on it for Senate. And when I was, uh, became Senate president, I talked to the Senate about making it a goal and they agreed, and so we've been doing it. We made it a goal last fall, and I like to tell people we've been doing this since before it was trendy, so uh, it's just a passion of mine, and I look forward to continuing to do this work until we reach this goal of our faculty mirroring our students. Hi, um, I'm Jane Sandor. I'm an English professor in the Humanities Division. I have a BA in Religious Studies from Smith College and an MFA in Fiction from the University of Alabama. Um, and I just, I consider myself a student of equity and I've been um, studying it through uh, my efforts with SITE um, and the team equity and empowerment there, as well as um, through the attendance of various conferences and webinars. And a lot of um, what I've learned about hiring um, came from my attending the webinar from the Center Urban, excuse me, Center for Urban Education at USC and the USC Race and Equity Center uh, webinars on hiring a diverse faculty, which really piqued my interest in, in institutional racism and how we come to terms with it and affect real change. Hi, I'm Erica. I studied uh, English and creative writing at UCLA as an undergraduate, and then I got my master's in English literature at Cal State Long Beach, and I've been in the community college classroom now for uh, 11 years, and the last eight of those years have been committed to Puente, which is a program designed to promote um, students from the margin into four-year universities, so most of my life has been committed to the success of students from um, Black and Latino communities. And so a lot of that is obviously coincides with the importance of promoting diverse faculty hiring. Excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us a little bit about yourselves and your background. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how traditional hiring practices have perpetuated institutional racism? 
So generally speaking, the majority of hiring committees are full-time faculty from the division that is hiring. And it has been my experience that faculty, uh, more than judging qualifications, will judge people on these very abstract things like, could I see myself working with this person? Would I want to have lunch with them? Or, you know, would I want to go to dinner with them after work? And that inherently is a racist belief because most people want to hang out with other people that are like them. And so then inherently we get these departments where people continue to select candidates who are just like them. And that really inhibits diversity because really what we should be looking for is what am I really good at and what am I not so good at? And let me look for someone who maybe is good at the things I'm not good at. So our students get this well-rounded experience with a diversity of backgrounds, a diversity of opinions and diversity of thoughts. Just to jump on what you said there, Darcy, um, in, and I, I just want to say that a lot of my information that I'm about to share is coming from Dr. Sean Harper and Dr. Estella Ben-Simone from Q and the USC Race and Equity Center. But one of the things that, that Dr. Harper talked about a lot, which is just what you're saying, Darcy, which is that um, we need to look for the additive contribution of a candidate. What do they bring that we don't already have? Um, and this whole idea of, oh, this person isn't a fit or this person is a right fit. And, and we have to look at the kind of racist norms behind what a fit means. And Dr. Ben Simone had this great quote that I, has really resonated with me. And she, she said, um, I want more racially mi minoritized, facu minoritized faculty to be hired. I will support outreach and other best practices, but I am not willing to accept that our values and preferences reproduce whiteness. Yeah, and that same, um, going on what Jane was saying, Dr. Ben Simone also talks about these tr traditional conceptions of fit that mm -hmm. we need to really revisit um, those traditional conceptions of fit, um, which, you know, traditionally has, have been communication, knowledge, enthusiasm, decisiveness, and assertiveness, maturity, and self-presentation, uh, but we really should be looking more for critical consciousness, uh, mm -hmm. engages in self-reflection, focuses on instructor responsibility, uses position and knowledge to support student success, use students as capable, uses student, student knowledge as an asset, that these are really um, the conceptions of fit that we should be looking for, not necessarily the traditional um, notions of fit. And, and she even goes on, uh, this might have been Dr. Harper who said this, but um, that we should look for a misfit. Mm -hmm. You know, like you, you don't always want to look for, are they a good fit? Hey, Jane, what yeah. was that phrase? You said additive something? From and Yeah, and at, look for a candidate's additive contribution. contribution. So, and yeah. he... It was, it's wonderful. And he says, um, ask what each candidate might add to the department. What is their additive contribution? What will this person add that we don't already have? And he said, this can show up racially in sexuality, ability, age, size. When we think about who's most qualified, we, we have to think about who can add something different that will make us better. Um, and he talks about the need for faculty to question and reflect at different points in the hiring process to ensure that these, you know, these biases that are with this idea of fit behind them are not undermining what we say that we value but it's a it's a it's stuck with me that idea oh i was gonna say i think that like my colleagues like really gave good answers on on like what what traditional hiring practices are problematic and this the myth of the good fit is a really is a really huge enemy in this situation right but the second part of the question i like a lot which is how is this a larger part or has this a puzzle piece in the larger mm -hmm. issue of institutional racism and i i think what's making me really in my own reflection is how is my college and how is college in general a component of institutional racism and as departments continue to perpetuate sameness and hire more people and more people who look the exact same, we start looking like institutions that I'm finding very problematic, like police mm -hmm. departments and healthcare situations where the rule makers and the power holders are all white and mm -hmm. we serve a community that we no longer reflect. And in fact, we are out of step with. And right. I like the concept of like trying to get in step. I mean, I might take what Jamie was saying as hiring the misfit, like the person who can help us refine the rhythm and the and the concept of step with our community so we can start matching our community so we can better serve our community. And when I think about like our departments, right? I mean, especially as an English professor, the very nature of my practice is colonial, right? And think about like anthropology classes and English classes that in the nature of my field, there's a component of the colonialism that makes me very uncomfortable. And when we also make it look like it's only white instructors and, and primarily students of color, all of a sudden I have a situation I'm very uncomfortable with and I definitely need to make more diversity on that. Yeah. I also wanted to add like some of the formalized practices of hiring that have kind of um, 
racist outcomes built into them. <laughs> One of the things that uh, Dr. Ben Simone talked about a lot, and for a while I was like, why is she talking about this so much? But it was the idea of the job announcement and how it's constructed. Um, and it's usually just considered like this kind of utilitarian document. Like I've never spent much time thinking about it, but she really invited everybody to kind of analyze the job announcement for kind of the role it plays in perpetuating whiteness. And like, for example, a, a job uh, description or announcement having a, stating a preference for a PhD which right away favors candidates who were able to be full-time students. Um, and then students who had, you know, had other degrees that were more accessible to them are then disqualified or take themselves out of the running right off the bat. So these little things that are kind of built into the structures, um, recruitment, we got to look at where we're recruiting and how diverse the networks are that we're accessing. When you have a predominantly white faculty, you're going to be accessing predominantly, or that, that faculty will be, you know, accessing predominantly white networks. So um, those things also need to be examined. Another thing that needs to be examined is um, not just that, you know, whether they're um, trying to invite people with PhDs, but also when they're, when a hiring panel is looking at not just GPA, which, you know, mm -hmm. but also like who are the candidates instructor and mm -hmm. who are their the instructors instructor and so on and so <laughs> on. You know, which one of these, you know, are connected uh, to to like Newton, for example, and I, this does this does happen, and so again, it's like it's just uh, perpetuating this idea, and it's also kind of um, not giving fair credit to those, or at least giving unfair credit to those who went to Ivy League colleges with a PhD. Right. Yeah, that shows up in pretty much in all intellectual the elitism. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's in big. all the data as well. With, with yeah, uh, what Jane and I found when we did our presentation is. Um, you know, some of these biases, like, and, you know, the bias is one of the biggest issues of why we're, we're losing, um, you know, at least with El Camino's uh, data that we have with their hiring practices, it's, you know, we're getting diverse applicant pools in the beginning stages. And as you're going through each stage in the hiring process, um, you know, as soon as people enter <laughs> the decision-making process, that's where you start to lose you know, all, you know, a majority of our diverse candidates. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the bias is one of the biggest issues that we see happening here. And um, the statistics prove it. I mean, some of the statistics that white applicants make up the largest um, ethnic group to apply for full-time faculty positions are at 40%, followed by Asian at 15%, and African um, American applicants at 14% but more than half of the hired faculty members are comprised of white and Asian applicants, you know, 30% for each group, followed by Hispanic applicants of 22%, but no African American um, applicants were hired for full-time positions. And they were making it into the first few levels mm -hmm. of the hiring process. It's just as soon as uh, people get involved, uh, they're getting filtered out. And so I think that was some of the data that was, um, you know, is something that we're looking to change at El Camino for sure. Um, it's a huge problem. I, I think something that feeds into this problem, and this is not an El Camino problem, it's not even an education problem. I think this is a problem with hiring everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's this sacred concept of confidentiality. And I get right. the merit of that, right? Because you don't wanna say something honest that's not flattering in a hiring process and then have somebody else on the committee run and tell the person that you still have to work with what you said about them that caused them not to get the job. So there, there is, but then the problem is that this, this confidentiality is so strict and so sacred that it's ridiculously hard to get any information out of the committee about what people actually talked about. So then right. you don't have data about what was actually discussed. What do we need to train people on? What are conversations that we need to be able to reframe? And you have one EEO rep um, on the committee. The, um, and, but if you have a hiring committee that has eight or 10 people and they all agree and you've got one person that's supposed to be kind of overseeing this process and working for equity, I mean, I don't envy that person's position. It's a really hard position. So while I understand the need for confidentiality, I think one thing that we need to investigate in education at large is some kind of a way to debrief and to have a record of, you know, what was discussed, what was said, especially that might be problematic. And maybe we redact names and such because we don't need to point people out personally, but we do need that data 
so that we can, uh, you know, train people better and come up with solutions to some of these problematic um, conversations. Absolutely. And I, I was just going to say that this is one thing that Dr. Harper and Dr. Ben Simone reiterated over and over about you have to do these annual audits of your hiring processes and they have a whole forms for it. And I was just like, we can't do this. We can't do any of this. And this is one of their major recommend recommendations for affecting change in this way. They're like, look at who the applicants are, look at the shortlist, look at the finalist pools, all these things. And we need to look year over year out of search, search outcomes and where we're losing these people in just that way, Darcy, that you, you described that is currently inaccessible, a lot of that data. Um, so, yeah. And can I ask a question? I don't know if, if anybody knows it, but when, is there any official policy that the hiring committees each year have to be different within the department? Like, you know, every time, um, you know, a particular department is up for hiring someone, do they always have the same people? Can, is there any rule that they need to switch it out? Or is that just pers personal preference based on it? At El Camino, it's at the discretion of the dean and the mm -hmm. department faculty. And oftentimes, we actually see the same people every year, which becomes problematic. Yeah, I think something that I'm hearing is definitely that a little transparency would be very good. Yes. Um, and I think that that applies to a lot of levels of any institution. Um, and I think that... Uh, I think that, you know, making some headway in there, for example, keeping records of what was discussed, like Darcy mentioned, is really important. I was on, I've been on hiring committees where um, things were said that should, should have been looked at differently. Um, mm -hmm. And so, and, and, you know, hear me now, I'm terrified to, to peep a word about it because of the nature and the culture of being on a hiring committee is that everything you're sworn to secrecy. I mean, it's, it's, uh, and, you know, that's where all the biases can just live and thrive and continue yes. and not be questioned and there no one faces consequences for them <laughs> um, okay. so that leads that leads us to our next question which is really convenient for me because i'm already talking um, <laughs> so we've talked about some examples of inequitable hiring practices uh let's let's talk about the inverse what might it look like to have better hiring practice uh what specific hiring practices should be implemented to ensure a level playing field for these applicants who are being discriminated against so I'd love to see blind screening where we don't have applicants' names on anything at all for the paper um, because I, I sometimes think people are judged based on their names. And I almost wish that we could take everybody's information and put it onto a blank piece of paper because I've been on committees before where they were judged one way or the other based on whether they used letterhead from their current institution and, and things like that, right? Like where someone was judged based on the type of paper they wrote their stuff on. Wow. And that just, to me, seems ridiculous. I don't know how you can judge the merit of someone's teaching based on the paper they use. But I, I think if, if we were to go to blind where their names aren't on it and everything looks identical to everybody, that might help um, that's might help level a playing field somewhat. I think every day I think since like this racial racial reckoning has started, I've been asking myself like how can I move passive feelings about equity to the forefront, right? How can I make them intentional? So for a long time I've said like diversifying faculty has been an importance for me, but how would I move them from the passive to the intentional? And I think that's a big question. It's like how do you move that component of hiring from the passive to the intentional? Could you, could you make something like a diversity cover letter that was 600 words asking each applicant, how do you serve underrepresented communities? And then have that be actually the first step. And it's like, after I read your 600 words on that, then I'll see if I wanna look at your CV. Because if I think equity and diversity is the most important, which I do, then that should be the first question. I don't wanna know your alma mater. I wanna know how you're gonna serve students in my classroom who come from underrepresented communities. And then I'll, I'll look at the other thing. And that might help me avoid personal biases about like good fit, right? Because yeah. I'm not even gonna look at those people until after I already see their equity statement. Yeah, one, one thing we are already working towards according to, I mean, that's what Shane and I have heard is that using an equity-minded rubric in the hiring process, um, you know, this is something that Dr. Harper and um, Dr. Ben Simone would recommend and something that I, I'm, I believe they're working towards at, at El Camino. Um, really having that equity-minded rubric and that being how we choose which candidates move on to the next level based off a, a set rubric. Not just that, but I mean, 
not only do we need like to center equity and have a rubric for that, but I think we also need to center teaching, um, teaching skills. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. this is a teaching institution and it's just a real shame when people are giving, um, are given extra credit or preference because they have a PhD and because, you know, they're fantastic at, you know, abstract or combinatorics or what have you, abstract algebra, some, you know, advanced math topic that we don't ever get to in our community college. And really what we value, what we should value at our community college, in all community colleges, just the ability to teach uh, to, to, our, to, our, well, to our marginalized students. Yeah. I agree that like the expert versus the teacher fact, like fallacy is, is really problematic that we would rather you be an expert in something versus an expert in serving our students, right? I only care about how you teach a material, not how well you understand it, especially when like usually the, the better the expert, the worse they are communicating it in my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think a lot of this is that we don't go off of evidence, right? You're, you're allowed and I right. made to say things like, they're a really good interviewer, right? These are <laughs> statements. These are, these are subjective statements. Right. And I just couldn't care less that you're good at interviewing. I think the way we even interviewed, it, it really poorly translates what I need from you, right? Yes. I took a grammar test at El Camino as part, of my, as part of my being hired, and now I don't even grade grammar. So I, I just think like the absurdity of the way we hire people and the kind of questions we ask when we have this finite amount of time to figure out if I can trust you with my students, right? And that That's question right. is just like so holy to me. It's like, can I give you my student? Would I trust you with them? And mm -hmm. so any statement that comes out needs to be based on evidence. Like, you don't like this candidate? What about them don't you like? Like, we need to talk about it hard, right? And I also think, like, I want to have an anti-deficit way of talking about candidates. Mm -hmm. Instead, we so often think about what makes me throw off this candidate instead of what makes me want to keep this candidate, um, right? A strengths-based understanding of people. The same way we talk about our students, the same way we want to talk about our students, we should be talking about our future, our future colleagues. I think that's a lot of great points, like the whole idea of focusing on, you know, how can we seek to include this person rather than exclude. And I also think everything that both Art and Erica are saying speak to also the importance of, of a really specific rubric. I mean, over and over in pushing equity, there's this, this kind of return to using very, very specific language, because anytime there's ambiguity or vague phrasing, there's an opportunity, again, for bias to creep in. And so if we are very exact um, about what we want in a rubric, you know, like we need clear evidence of this candidates responsive, responsiveness to, um, you know, racial, socioeconomic, academic, and cultural diversity or something like that, then we can check that off. We have to be very clear about those things. And I think there's a lot of kind of nebulous, they're practicing, you know, here in, in, in the interviews, in um, looking over cover letters, all of it. So I agree with you. Yeah. And asking equity-minded interview questions in the mm -hmm. interview process is really important. You know, Erica, you mentioned that briefly, and it's definitely something that comes up in all of um, you know, all of the recommendations is we should be including interview questions in the hiring process that are equity minded um, to make sure that candidates are, um, like you all mentioned, um, here to support student success. I remember I worked at another college and we had a full time job that most of the adjuncts that were familiar with the community had applied for and they, they went with an outside hire, which is always kind of hard um, to handle emotionally. And then when we all got to meet him at a happy hour, we were like, oh, so what community college do you come from? And like, what's your experience? And he was like, oh no, I've been teaching at Columbia for the last three years. Oh. And then we just all three left and it sounds really catty, but just, we were all like laughing, like, oh, well, good luck, my friend. Um, you just you don't know really what we do. And I, and I thought, I wonder if they even asked that question in the interview, which is, do you know what kind of students we serve? Do, do you know the demographic? Do you know their background? Do you know my community? Do you know the needs of my community? Do you know the local high schools? I mean, this kind of concept of like, can you truly serve my community is, is something I feel really protective about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this might sound radical, but one thing I think a lot about um, that maybe I would love to experiment with is what if we did a year where you didn't get to see someone's educational background. It just said mm. meets min quals. Right, so somebody is screened, they meet the min quals, you don't know if they have a master's or a PhD or anything else, you just know they meet min quals. And then it's just like um, X number of teaching experience years mm -hmm. or something. And, and you can, pro and we would probe for, you know, do you understand our students? But for instance, if you're, you know, teaching at Cal State LA and you have experience with students that are very much like ours, that's probably the same. You don't necessarily need to be at community college, but like, with Erica's example, if you've only been teaching in the Ivy League, that's probably problematic because those students and our students are very different populations. Mm -hmm. 
So thinking about the other side of the table with the hiring practices, um, what can and should applicants know about equitable hiring practices? I was going to say we don't have any. <laughs> I was just going to say that one thing that um, I found useful after going to this webinar was um, just invest being aware of the language that's used in a job announcement so they can understand the degree of commitment uh, an institution has to equity. So as a, as a job applicant, that's something I might look for. Look, look at the language that's being used. Is it deficit-minded um, language? Is it equity-minded? Um, and also, I don't know, it's just very, and also in terms of how to, uh, how to think about how to construct one's own cover letter, to think about that language and investigate one's own use of, of that wording. Um, and Jamie and I had talked about, and, and when we presented this, one of our, one one of the people attending our um, little brown bag said we were talking about this idea of, of candidates of color feeling like they had to whiten their applications and then feeling like if the committee is now looking for candidates of color they feel a little betrayed and the kind of complication that that um, brings up and I thought that was a really interesting um, quandary there but anyway that was something we were we were talking about. Oh how interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think this question even has its own internal quandary, right? I had a very close friend apply for the English position last year, and I wanted to give him tips and suggestions, but it felt like so much like insider trading, right? Like I wanted to be like, oh, well, my dean cares a lot about SLOs and whether or not you teach to your SLO data. And it's like, do I want to give him this insider track information? I mean, it, and very naturally, it, as the white person, I run right. in, a very white, in, a, in a very white circle of friends, right? So a lot of my friends are also white and that's the kind of people I'm giving this insider tip to. And I think that's one of the problems, right? We're, we're creating insular communities that promote and persist insular communities because that's who we're getting the extra high five, like the extra hands up to, right? Um, right. And that's really problematic. So now I feel like I don't want to give a tip to a friend. Like I, I, I feel like maybe that allows for more of an equal playing field or, or an equitable approach would be to only give my friends who are adjuncts of color, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The heads up and not my friends who are white. But I think this is interesting is like, how do you... How do you dole out information? Because you do have special insider information. You know what your department is looking for. You know what your department cares a lot about. Right. Um, and what do you do with that information? So, what do you give it to? Yeah. So I, I, things I would want applicants to know. First of all, I would say your job search starts a year or two before you ever start applying for a job. Like I started thinking about what job I wanted and how to prepare myself for that two or three years before I applied for a job. So I started as an adjunct doing committee work on committees that I wanted to be able to talk about in my cover letter when I applied for jobs. Um, I, you know, started looking for experiences that would allow me to tell interviewing committees at the institution I was interviewing at, um, you know, why I would be a good faculty member in their department, why I would contribute not only in the classroom, but I would also make their lives easier outside the classroom, which everybody loves to hear. Um, and I, so I think that part of it is important. Um, you know, if, if you have the time, uh, like if you don't need the job right now and you have some time, I, always, I think it could be valuable to, to apply for jobs like a year before you're really looking for the job and just like, and I use different cover letter strategies and then would see, did I get the interview here? Did I get the interview there? What seemed to work? What didn't? And then I, my, the other piece of advice that I, I would give to someone applying for a job is look for someone who has the job you want, who was recently hired and ask them if you can see their materials. I modeled my cover letter off of someone who had just gotten a community college teaching job at a nearby college. And, um, and it worked for me. So I think um, ha uh, building a network uh, of people who have the job you want and then talking to them about desirable qualifications and things that worked. And, and you know, what did you get asked in your interview? Um, if you, you know, know people in the field, you can ask them, you know, what are common interview questions? Because interview questions tend to have themes. Those are all things that I think um, people should know when they apply for these jobs. You know, I think one thing that, that's interesting about this is, uh, as Erica was saying, oftentimes the hand up that we give is to the people who are in our circles. Mm -hmm. And what you were just talking about, Darcy, is all really great advice. And I wonder if there's, there because uh, our college has a program called Getting the Job. It's all about interview preparation and things like this. Um, but I wonder if there's a more intentional way to cultivate the talent because we have a large talent pool of adjunct professors of aspiring professors of color. And, you know, how could we be intentional 
about and about really putting them first yeah. um, when it comes to these types of things. And I, I, I know that there are, of course, barriers in terms of well-meaning but outdated um, rules about, you know, using race as a determining factor in anything. But I, I, I wonder how we can do that. And I don't know the answer, um, but I, I think it's worth looking at because if we're serious about this, we should, we should be out there helping young professors or professors who are still finishing their degrees with, hey, you know, you can come here and try to apply. And even if you don't get the job here, I'm going to help you with your cover letter. I'm going to help you apply at another college. I'm going to introduce you to the chair of English over there. I'm going to introduce you, et cetera, and so on. So I, I think there's, there's an opportunity here for something like that. Oh, I was just going to say I completely agree. And this whole idea of recruitment, and I think there being more stepping stones and more intentional recruitment um, for talented candidates of color. And I was, you know, I was thinking when we were talking about this, Jamie, and I was thinking about like my past, my past mentors um, and SSI coaches. I'm like, some of these young students would be extraordinary professors. And I'm like, we, there's got to be a way to create a path. And, And there are, I think there are other institutions that are doing this. And I feel like we have to maybe try to learn from them, right? These places that are kind of moving the needle on this and, and kind of learn from their their methods because I, th- I think that's a great point yeah yeah I would say about a, about a year or two years ago after thinking more about this question since Jane brought it to my attention maybe two years ago but that was like one of her priorities was to diversify more of our English department that whenever I see um, um, a faculty of, of color in our, in our mailroom one of my first questions is like hi my name is Erica I'm a full-timer how can I help you and the second question is are you thinking about working here could I help you interview prep uh, and I always get like this crazy look like um like oh, what a, I don't know if I am going to apply here. I'm like, well, you should, and we would be better for it. And I would mm-hmm. be happy to look at your letter of recommendation. I mean, if they look at your cover letter, um, I would be happy to bring a, a letter of recommendation to our dean's office and ask if she would put it in your file. And um, every time I get this look like that's a crazy thing to offer somebody, but it, I think it should be something that they're getting all the time. I also think that the more comfortable people feel applying at our school because they believe they're wanted here, the better they will interview. I think the better that the culture becomes a place that is welcoming. I always mm-hmm. think the only reason why I applied at El Camino is I had heard a story about Jane uh, at a party and I'd heard that El Camino was really um, a mom-friendly place to work. And I had worked at some <laughs> of the community colleges that were not mom-friendly. I always say like adjunct circles, definitely love the chisma. I mean, I, I had a really good understanding <laughs> of every college that was gonna be paternalistic and every college that was gonna be okay with who I am. Um, and I think the same thing. I know lots of uh, faculty of color at other schools that don't apply at El Camino because they know our reputation, right? And so that means like in the mailroom, it's my job yes. to change that reputation and change that community and culture. Yeah, Jamie and I were talking about conversations we've had with adjuncts of color. We're like, oh, are you applying? And it's like, no, nah, I've already done it three times. And what's the point? So that's that, a heartbreaking answer to hear, absolutely. right? And I always absolutely. say like, please do it again. And can I help you all along the way, right? Even as, even as like a fellow adjunct, I've worked with, you know, I've, a couple other adjuncts of color. I've said, yeah, let's work on our application together. Let's, you know, let's help each other. And I think that's really important to have that kind of um, camaraderie because I want the job too, but I also want to work with a diverse faculty when I get the job eventually, you know? Yeah. So it's like, it's not, it, it, you, you can't have that competitive spirit in um, a community like we have, you know, like, like you have in, especially the adjunct community, because at a lot of colleges, it can feel really isolating, especially if you're working at multiple, on multiple campuses. And um, so it's important that we support each other, as well as have support from mentors, full-time faculty. Um, And so, yeah, that's, that's something I was really disappointed to hear from a couple adjuncts of color that I spoke with, with the last hiring, round of hiring, even though it didn't end up happening because of COVID, but, um, but yeah, that it was, that they were not even going to bother applying because uh, what was the point? So Uh, I I think the hard thing is like, I have not put my name in the hat yet for like trying to be on a hiring committee. And the reason why is I always think maybe I'll be more impactful mentoring adjuncts or being involved in the adjunct community and I have a lot of friends who are still looking for jobs and so I just keep thinking it's unethical it's unethical but probably my greatest impact would be serving on a hiring committee but I I think Mm -hmm. I don't know I don't know if I'm if I'm serving on a hiring committee who's looking at cover letters I mean on average looking at four or five cover letters a hiring people who are who I want to have be my future fellow faculty members Mm -hmm. 
what you guys are saying are like really resonated with me because I know of at least five, if not six people of color who have already given up. And they're like, no, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna apply anymore at all. It's just, I'm just gonna be a part-time for life. And these are teachers who I really have a lot of confidence would be, they would be very, they would be excellent, excellent teachers. I mean, one person, for example, uh, who she goes out of her way to go to conferences and she goes out of her way to teach uh, in a student-centered approach, which is really very uh, um, demanding. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a tough thing to do. Um, and it, what also resonates is I have actually, like, like Erica, uh, coached some people um, who are currently in my department. And uh, it did take a matter of like just talking about a confidence and exuding that confidence and then be kind of like code switching in a matter of speaking, just kind of speaking uh, in a manner and in a way that, um, that the audience, the hiring panel would appreciate. There's, there's a certain tone, there's a certain uh, a way of speaking, I think that that isn't really, that that needs to be uh, uh, prioritized in those interviews. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, I, we, Jane and I also, when we did this presentation was the importance of diversifying committees and um, not even just diversifying committees, but also making sure that committee members are equity minded. I know that we have an EEO rep on hiring committees, but you know, if it all falls on the EEO rep, then it's a problem. You know, you need to have, um, there's gotta, there's gotta be equity, equity minded, um, you know, people on the hiring committee. So Erica, I mean, I, yes, you should serve on a hiring committee, you know, that people, people who have, um, experience with, you know, the importance of equity and should be on the hiring committees because that's a, um, should be one of the top categories you're looking for. It's a shame that the EEO rep doesn't have a, a vote in my department. Mm. Sorry, I just wanted to say one thing, because uh, the EEO rep is, is an important element of a hiring committee, but it's also another uh, place where bias can creep in, because one of the EEO rep's jobs is to say you cannot discuss race whatsoever. <laughs> so, for mm-hmm. example, that means that I like, and I'm not, this didn't happen uh, to me, but I'm just saying like, if I was on a hiring committee today and I said, um, I'd really like to prioritize or try to find someone who is a better representation for our student population. Like something as innocuous as this would be like, I might even get removed from the committee because I brought up race as a factor. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so it's, it's well-intentioned, but it's now, you know, um, so I think that, you know, even things that we think are, are going to benefit faculty of color can't, you know, I mean, every single thing can lead, because the institution is set up that way, can lead yeah, to further inequities. Right. Yeah. And that rep can be from outside of the department or within the department, right? Or is it always an outside of the department person? Does anybody know? Does it either or? I don't know that. They have to have taken the training and then they're assigned by HR. I think usually they try to find someone who's outside, but it's pretty random. Which, and if they are outside of the department, could, from our earlier point, where we talk about, right, if that's one voice, right, among this um, committee, and if most of the committee are, if that rep is outside of the department, I could see where that could also be problematic, right? Where, again, there's these many voices kind of against this one person who's maybe even outside of the department, which then puts them further and their voice further out, too. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and like, one of the things I hear all the time, because there's, a, there's tension around whether the ER rep should vote or not, or the EEO rep should vote or not, right? And I keep hearing faculty going, well, they don't know what we're looking for in the department, so we can't have them vote, especially if they're not faculty. They don't know how to evaluate faculty. And I'm like, seriously? Someone can't sit through an interview and figure out if this person would be a decent faculty member or not? Especially having been a student themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. And in theory, they're one person on a committee of eight or nine people. Like, how much does that one vote really count? But at least their voice is heard and the vote is recorded. Well, this this is, is, this, yeah, this is something. Go for it, Jane. Jane say the same thing. That, <laughs> yeah, I will. Go for it. Um, but this is this is something that also um, we we heard from EEO reps on uh, faculty hire previous faculty hiring committees that you know a, one of the biases that come up with the teaching demonstration can often be that we are favoring this kind of um, you know 
really discipline specific uh, technical um, intense lesson right that has all these you know all the bells and whistles but you know isn't that easy to understand for somebody who's not in that um, necessarily in that division and so the EO rep is like yeah this was you know everyone's like oh that was amazing that was such an amazing teaching demonstration and the EO reps like I actually have no idea what they were talking about and actually the EO rep is probably more like our students in the classroom who don't have all this prior knowledge and um, you know the same schema so it's like it, it's actually quite a, an issue with um, not having, I, I think the EO rep should be from outside the department because I, I do think it's important to have somebody in those teaching demonstrations and in that interview process who may not have, um, you know, the same set of knowledge uh, that, that the hiring committee in the division would have. Yeah, I, I think this is a huge problem. It's a huge pet peeve of mine because look at who our students are. None of mm -hmm. them are experts. And, and so actually, if you can't teach to a reasonably intelligent person who has never been to college, mm -hmm. then you're not a good fit for community college. Mm -hmm. uh, I've interviewed at some places that actually have the teaching demonstration scored by students. So they have students come in and watch the TV teaching demonstration yes. and score it. I think that's a great practice that could yes. help promote equity and, and really get, and the students have to explain did you understand this? Why or why not? What, what were things you liked? What were things that made it problematic for you? And I think that's a great practice and something that could really open eyes for these discipline experts who are looking for this technical jargon that just throws students for a loop and doesn't help them learn. Yeah, that's a, that's a recommendation also from uh, Dr. Harper. He's like, you need student panels and then compare their outcomes and decisions to, uh, up against the hiring committees and, and mm -hmm. to do that regularly. <laughs> you know, the other, the other point about that too is it's a, such a much more authentic experience because giving a teaching demo to a bunch of professors is not the same experience as giving a teaching demo to actual students. And yeah. I think that rapport and that, that back and, not necessarily back and forth, but that, um, that element of the audience, because how we present um, to a group is largely influenced by the audience that we're presenting to. And um, that's just, I think, a much more authentic practice than doing a teaching demo for, for professors. So um, we've talked a lot about hiring practices and questions and those sorts of things. So what do you think are the biggest misconceptions people have about this topic of equitable hiring? that we are exempt from bias, <laughs> that I'm not biased, um, that I can just trust my gut and I'm gonna end up with the best candidate. I think that's a grave misconception. Yeah, and back to the good fit, that we're looking for a good fit for our department, but what we really need is a misfit. Oh, that just because somebody went to a great school or <laughs> had a great postdoc or you know had some glitzy, uh, fellowship experience or something that that makes them a great teacher. I mm -hmm. actually think the opposite. Um, I think people like, you know, if you went to Harvard and got straight A's and you've never struggled a day in your life with learning, you're probably not a great teacher because you don't understand how to problem solve and like teach this to someone who struggles with it. Whereas I actually think a lot of the best teachers are people who struggled through it themselves, had to learn different ways of learning things because then they can use that with their students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just to emphasize that point. Yeah, I, I just seen it way too too often, and I try to go as many hiring committees as I can. Except um, uh, when when my when my name pops up in the uh, in the uh, panel, and it usually gets often gets voted down, partly because my name's on it. But um, I have seen too often, you know, where the priority is people with PhDs from Ivy League colleges, which is which yeah, which is a shame. Because just for your same point that an expert in that field doesn't make them an, an expert teacher. Right. Art, can I ask you about what you just said about being voted onto a panel? Um, this seems like such a mysterious <laughs> um, process. How does this, because I feel like Lars was telling me about this too, that we, you put your name to be in on a hiring committee and then who decides whether you get to be on it or not. And then he was saying he's never been chosen for one. Um, are more equity-minded yeah. candidates being kept off these hiring committees? Uh, yeah, um, there's a, a, how should I say, a, a split in the department, in the math department. We have traditional teachers and we have more progressive, equity-minded teachers. Uh, 
Hmm. And it's, it's, you know, it's a big thing. It's kind of like uh, red states, blue states, Republicans, Democrats. And so there's this, there's struggle between the two. And so when my name or Lars' names is uh, by the Dean submitted as a proposal to be for a hiring panel, the whole department votes up or down. Hmm. So oftentimes, you know, we're voted down. Wow. Yeah. Something, um, something that I think gets to the heart of, this and one of the biggest misconceptions from my perspective is is just that the misconception about equity the misconception about a lot of this type of stuff student-centered is that it, it somehow lowers standards or right. that it is somehow putting the reputation of the college at risk the you know all this stuff and i think all it is is being honest about what the real work is um because if you're looking for somebody who can who can do some of the super hard, for example, I mean, I'm just using math as an example. So if somebody can perform math at an extremely high level, that's a great thing, but that's not really the skill that we're hiring people for. It's the same with English, right? If someone can pass a grammar test, that's, a, that's great. Good for you. But teaching people grammar is not really the main work that we do. Um, and I'm sure that that applies to pretty much every discipline. This, you know, um, And so I think that when people are, I mean, I think it's also because people view it as an existential threat. People view it as, oh, people like me aren't going to be hired anymore, right? People like my friends or the people I know are now going to be at a disadvantage. Right. Uh, and therefore, I have to protect this thing I have, even though I acquired it unfairly. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's a big problem. It's a big, it's a big problem for people to be viewing this through the through the lens of I am protecting rigor or I am protecting right. standards when to you, what standard really means is you, right? It really just means identity. It doesn't mean an abstract uh, or objectively true value statement. Yeah. <laughs> I can Yeah, me too. It's well said. Mm -hmm. I, I've heard like in, in hallways discussions about rigor being tied to the, uh, to the success, no, to the attrition rate. You know, meaning that, you know, if, mm. if, you're passing, if you're passing too many students, then your class is not rigorous enough, which is, yeah, it's like, go figure that one out. But there is that ideology that you're describing, this idea of rigor and this idea of maintaining uh, the, the status quo, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, the, the phrase at one department meeting was, yeah, I am a um, weeder out, or I, my job oh, to man. weed people out. I, I serve as the self-proclaimed gatekeeper. And so, you know, we need more of me. Wow. And I'm looking at the statistic right now on my sheet that I got from uh, that webinar from Dr. Ben Simone. She said 60% of black students transfer out of STEM fields. So there you have it. Well, we had one cohort. We followed in the math department, Lars and I were doing a lot of research, you know, with uh, completion rates of our students starting at the lowest levels of remediation. This is before AB 705. And we saw one cohort of about several hundred, maybe three up to 300 African-American students starting at the lowest levels pre-algebra, which is teaching uh, addition and subtraction, and seeing how far, you know, they progress over the course of like two years. And in this cohort of, of 200 or 300 African-Americans, not a single one of them, um, made it to a STEM pathway algebra, intermediate algebra course in two years. And that is not considered a problem, was not considered a problem. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we, have, we had similar numbers in English pre-AB 705. Mm -hmm. And it was the students of color who were, who were bearing the brunt of all of it. They were getting, you know, the discrimination was just intense. And it was disguised by the fact that it wasn't perpetuated by a single mustache twirling you know, <laughs> white, white cap wearing racist person. It was, right. it was impersonal. It was the institution. And it was all these things that we thought were scientific and thought were neutral, but mm. they weren't. Yeah, it's all racialized. And we need a re-examination re of the purpose of these classes. So like, okay, if you teach a like very foundational majors prep class, then okay, maybe you need to make sure students know a certain like amount of stuff, you know, and if they don't, you can't pass them because they're not going to be able to succeed in the field. I, I feel that way about my majors class. But like my non, if you teach a non-majors GE class, like 
does it really matter if they know every tiny little detail by the time they finish your class? Or do you just need them to have some foundational knowledge to be, you know, a responsible citizen and be able to, you know, be an educated person? I, I think the purpose of the classes as the weed out kind of thing is, is problematic inherently because it, what is the purpose of the class for the student? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so uh, what can we do to change inequitable hiring practices? I think we spoke a little bit about that already, but maybe we can yeah. go more in depth. And uh, who are the stakeholders? I, ha I get the hard question. Thank you. <laughs> you do. <laughs> I think a lot of people have touched on. Yeah. yeah. You ask the that. tough questions, Art. Yeah. <laughs> Jamie and I have a long list. Jamie, you want to hit some of the lists? What do you okay, think? Yeah, there? <laughs> some of it's a review. Well, some yeah, some of it's a little repetitive. I mean, the, the one of the things diversify our committees, right? Um, uh, you know, Jane at R is, you know, has told us that you can volunteer. Um, Jane Ishikawa, she's told us you can volunteer to be an EEO rep. You can, um, and you can take the training. And so she like definitely recommends that. And she also, you know, flat out said, if you have any, um, any programs or training that's going to um, help us institutionalize equity at El Camino to bring the ideas to her. She has the funding for it um, to to really, you know, uh, set up those, set those plans in motion. So those are things that you can definitely, and that's at the Office of Staff and Student Diversity. Um, you can, she can put those into action. So yeah, I think that's, that's a, a big thing to keep in mind. I think as a college, we should be mandating implicit bias and equity training for everyone who serves mm -hmm. on a hiring committee. Um, mm -hmm. I, yep. I think a lot of people are say. completely unaware of this whole idea of implicit bias. Like I talk to people all the time that, no, I'm not biased. I try really hard to be nice right. to, you know, whoever. And I, but it's like, no, we all have them. It's not an evil thing. Like every person on this planet does. And we need... We need to be aware of it and know how to set that aside and make a good decision without that. And, and without the training, people don't know how to do it. We're not born knowing how to do that. We need more training. There is, I, I was on that uh, committee, but that got disbanded because of COVID. So, and there is a little, um, I don't know the company that puts it together, but you know, there's a little implicit, explicit bias training, but it's just like click on this or click on this and listen for 30 minutes. And I think it needs to go deeper than that. There has to be real um, self-reflection um, and self-monitoring practice, um, all sorts of things. So I think it definitely needs to go, go deeper and be continuous. And we have to recheck in with each other, I think as a hiring committee over and over and to check ourselves. What are we doing? Are we slipping <laughs> in our equity focus here? Um, so I think we just have to be very vigilant and there needs to be a deeper training. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, the equity rubric for mm -hmm. hiring needs to be, it needs to happen. I mean, I know that's something that they're working towards uh, implementing at El Camino. And so I think that's hugely important is having that kind of equity minded rubric um, to help you uh, move candidates along and, and also changing the, you know, really visit, visiting the interview questions and making sure that the interview questions are equity minded and equity focused really, because we say that's what we're looking for. If you look on the college website and you read about our mission and values, we say that's what, what we are all about. So we need to put that into action um, in, that in the hiring process, in the interviews, um, and in the selection process. Yeah. What was that committee that got disbanded, Jane? Oh, we were, it was the hiring committee for the spring that uh, it's, all, it's all over now. Yeah, hire, okay. yeah. <laughs> COVID. Mm -hmm. Since this type of work often involves engaging with resistance or even willful obstruction, what are some ways that equitable hiring practice can be practiced by members of a hiring committee with unfavorable protocol still in place? I really like this question because <laughs> it gets at the heart of the, the difficulty in so many ways that we're facing here. And I, and I just kind of wanted to quote Dr. Sean Harper because I, I appreciated what he said and it's, it stuck with me. And he said, um, have a bias for equity. And he said, equity is about corrective justice. 70% of full professors are white and we're denying our institution benefits if we don't make equity a priority. So he says, have an explicit bias for equity. And then why? He says, one, because we say we do. Two, because our students of color and their white counterparts deserve it. Three, because students of color have been demanding it often across generations. 
Um, four, a diverse faculty strengthens your department, academic school, and university. Um, and five, because the demographic mismatch between your students and faculty is actually fixable. We, we actually can do something about it. Without lowering standards or rigor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. I, well, I think that the, the other ugly part of this is that uh, there's a lot of judgment going on about uh, racialized like shibboleths. So like the way people pronounce certain words, um, mm -hmm. all these kinds of things are being silently judged when they have zero impact on right. a student's ability to understand a topic, right? Mm -hmm. They have zero impact on that person's teaching ability, their intelligence, anything like that. But I think that unfortunately, um, a lot, and a lot of those things can be hidden behind, oh, this person came off as less professional to me, right? That, right. that can be sort of a, like a dog whistle, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, um, yeah, I think that implicit bias training is so necessary. And the rubric. I feel like rubric is not a sexy word, but I actually think it's major. And we keep saying it, but it's like you keep talking about like the, the biases that are hidden behind these feelings that we're working with. And it's like this, if we're very specific about what we're looking for in a candidate, very, very, very specific and everything's very laid out and exact, there's going to be a lot less hiding behind gut feelings. Mm -hmm. um, and so that needs to be all out on the table and explicitly articulated. I think those of us who are equity-minded need to be really intentional about serving on hiring committees and making ourselves available. And Erica mentioned earlier about the mentoring. So maybe it's even a point of like we, those of us who are equity-minded kind of work together and some of us are going to do mentoring this year and some of us are going to volunteer for hiring committees and maybe we switch off the next year. Mm. And then be really, really brave when you're in the hiring committee and you challenge your colleagues when they say something that is racist right. or that is biased. If they want to cut that candidate out for like challenge them, why are you cutting that candidate out? And if they don't have a reason, then that candidate doesn't get cut out. And then I think right. the other thing that's really important is err on the side of leaving people in, even if it's inconvenient and it meets two extra hours of interviews. Like I'd rather see 15 candidates and you know know that I got everybody who's qualified then get out you know three hours earlier and maybe have missed someone who was wonderful awesome so um thank you so much for all of your expertise and insights uh everybody I'd like to close this out with what can people do to learn more about this topic and how can, you know, our listeners, all four of them, uh, how can they get involved, <laughs> right? If people are hearing this and they're like, yeah, I agree, I wanna do something, what can they do? So for more information, the statewide Senate um, just put out a really awesome Canvas course that they link to on their website that goes through how can you do equitable hiring on your campus and it's, there is a series of modules that addresses the job description, that addresses what are your interview questions, your composition of your committee, and it really goes through everything and just kind of asks critical questions. So I think, you know, you could do that as a committee, focus on one part, as a college, we could work on that. Um, I think that's a great resource. Yeah. And, uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, you know, on the, as an individual, I mean, most of the information that Jane and I shared was as she mentioned from um, the hiring a diverse faculty webinar from Q and, uh, and so I just think that that's also really important is view these webinars, um, you know, and, and actively um, take the implicit bias training and the tests right online mm -hmm. and, um, and take a hard look at yourself also and um, understand your own cultural identity and biases and how that could contribute to um, the way that you participate on a hiring committee. Yeah, and I, just to add to those resources, like you were saying, Jamie, there's the Center for Urban Education. You can go to their website. They have a lot of resources. And some of those um, are things like um, sample equity-minded interview questions. So you can kind of check when you're on a hiring committee and you get a list of questions or you're developing those questions as a committee. You can look down that list, use those, modify those, incorporate them. Um, there's a checklist for creating equity-minded job announcement. There's an interview process checklist for the hiring committee to check themselves. There's an equity word search table, things like that. There's also the USC Race and Equity Center, which has 
has research and reports and webinars um, that are worth getting into. And then the other thing I want to say is Jamie's and my PowerPoint and actually those that list of um, documents that I just went off uh, or just described from Q, you can find those also on the site website that we have at El Camino. Um, if you click on the team equity empowerment um, site, so, so you can access all this stuff that we just shared there too. <laughs> I'll jump in and add, you know, when we were talking, a couple things. When Darcy mentioned earlier, she thought it was a really radical idea of, you know, just telling them or putting somewhere on there, somehow blocking off where they went, right, to school or what their training was. I don't think that's very radical at all. I mean, <laughs> I think it's, I'm surprised we don't already do that. Like, well, yes, there should be this, uh, that kind of a policy, just because I know my own personal bias. I mean, when Jamie um, was giving her background and she studied in England, I was like, ooh, you know? <laughs> I was like, ooh, that's so interesting. I could tell if I was on a hiring committee and I saw that, I'd be like, exactly. <laughs> right? Exactly. Not that then, the hiring committee's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just like, Trouble now. Right? Yeah. being an Anglophile, I was like, oh, I want, I would, you know, want to hear more about that. So just that right. already in bias. And then earlier I was looking at something for art, for sight and art. Um, I, I had, uh, saw arts bio and I was like, you worked at NASA. Now I'm like, now I'm like, ooh, art, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so I think there's that, definitely that, um, things like that. So even if it's not, yes. you know, a, a race or gender or whatever bias, but it's that institutional elitism bias um, can also play a factor. Absolutely. We, um, we actually started our presentation when we did this for site for the Winter Institute. We started by everybody writing down what they think their biases were if they were in a hiring committee, whether it's just like the way somebody dresses, the way they, where they went, or they studied with your advisor, your beloved advisor, they studied with them. Um, you know, all these things that, you know, it's, it's, one would feel compelled to think favorably of this person. And so we had the, everybody put them in a, in a fishbowl and then we kind of went through them all together, which was really revealing and interesting. Yeah, and we looked at also, okay, what's on the job announcement? And pretty right. much none of the <laughs> none of the biases that they brought up, or obviously none of them are listed on the job announcement as requirements. So that was like a huge, um, you know, issue. The, the other thing I, I would say as well is, I mean, I know it's a big issue with funding, but um, if you look at El Camino College, we are, our adjunct faculty are more diverse than our full-time faculty. And so um, really finding opportunities to get them involved in the hiring process, even for other, I know they probably can't be on a full-time committee, but um, getting them more involved on campus and, and in any way that they can and actually providing compensation and funding for that. Because yes. one of the biggest barriers for an adjunct is I can't commit to that because I am not going to get paid for it. And I, you know, it's a struggle to put yeah. all this time into it if, I can't get compensated for my time. So really trying to advocate for that um, as, as an important part of the process so that we can get, um, you know, the adjuncts of color involved in um, program, you know, committees and things like that where they can serve on. They don't get to use flex credit. So um, it's kind of a, a, a it's, it's kind of something that I think could help get more on their resumes and help them also uh, move on to the next level to get hired full-time. Or and I, just okay. not favoring tenured faculty, because generally speaking, and not, not everybody believes this, but the big data bears it out. Our, our college is getting more diverse as our new faculty are more diverse than our faculty that have been here 25, 30, 35 years, or even 10 or 15. <laughs> Um, uh, like if you look at our recent cohorts, they are more diverse and they are generally more equity minded because we started looking for that more. Mm -hmm. And so when, when a department says, well, we're only going to take people on the hiring committee who are tenured, well, you've just cut all your diversity out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's a great point. And if it helps to, is a little bit of a brighter spot. I was hired in 2018 and some of the things that you guys were saying just on the um, moving the needle more toward equity-minded practices within the hiring committee, I feel like there was some positive, like I didn't mm -hmm. have a grammar test. Um, I feel like a lot of the questions that were asked were really focusing on my student-centered teaching. My teaching demo, I tried to like, you know, pair, uh, and can, I don't know how much I can tell. I don't think I'm under, <laughs> I don't think I'm under Chris a gag cut it right? out if it's You, you can tell us anything. Probably <laughs> should cut all this out. But I did kind of a teaching demo, which I had done the same teaching demo a year before at another college and didn't get it anywhere. It was like bombed. But I did try and compare, you know, 
I compared Kairos to like the Kardashians and I was like trying to like, you know, <laughs> sort of like, here's this bridge to like maybe what our students would know, you know, or like some sort of, you know, fun, make it fun, but also like teach them what they needed to learn. And so I, I do feel like at least from my experience, and this was only a couple of years ago, that there was um, some of this more equitable, right, lean toward mm -hmm. that in my um, uh, in my interviews and in my hiring. So I, I hopefully that's maybe a bright spot, a positive. Yeah, no, there are, we have some deans who care very much about equity and they've made some changes to the way the process is, is mm -hmm. occurring. Um, like uh, there's this new, and I think this also maybe came out of Janie Ishikawa's office, but like the new kind of, I guess mission statement that goes along with every job job announcement um, has been thought through, and it, the language there has been changed and made much more equity minded. So there there's some good moves there. But then department by department, there's a lot of variation in terms of commit to equity language and things like that. But also the questions that are being asked, like there's been some some push there. So yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and that's interesting to hear from that perspective, having just gone through the process yourself. So, but yeah, there there is some movement. I was more. actually really <laughs> sad that we didn't get to hire this last year because we made it a very intentional effort to like like um, make the deans give more equity-minded job descriptions. We were more equity-minded with the selection process. We did implicit bias training. Like, and so I, I was really sad that we didn't get to see if that worked out, if, if it made any difference. And so now we're not going to hire again this year. So right. I don't know, disappointing. Yes. Have they made that announcement? They're not, we're not opening it up either, like anybody or they're... Yeah, it's a freeze, right? There's yeah. no money. Still a freeze. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Next year is going to be worse than this year is, budget-wise. Good night. <laughs> 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 I need another drink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>